You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. A possible breakthrough in US-China relations and nuclear arms reduction. The inquiry into the UK government's handling of COVID-19 floats the astonishing suggestion that Boris Johnson is indecisive, disorganised and self-serving, and the Pentagon asks for trouble from flying saucer enthusiasts. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Annette Dittert and Michael Stott will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Annette Dittert, a senior correspondent for German broadcaster ARD, and by Michael Stott, Latin America editor of the Financial Times. Hello to you both. Hello. Nice to be here. Um, Michael, first of all, your first time here, um, and as is traditional, um, if you would uh, introduce yourself briefly to our listeners and explain what what led you to this this career pinnacle. Uh, well, uh, I, I go back to the 1980s for my sins in, in, in the profession of foreign correspondent. My first posting was in Bonn, actually, in, in then West Germany. Uh, and uh, I, I found my way to Latin America in the 90s, went through uh, Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia, uh, had a spell uh, as Europe, Middle East and Africa editor at Reuters, then went to Moscow for a time uh, and came back to Latin America with the FT. Uh, latterly. So I've, I've been covering Latin America for the last five years for the FT and before that uh, was UK editor for the FT. Well, we will be prevailing upon your Latin America expertise later in the show. Uh, Annette, welcome back to the show. Last time you were on, I got yelled at afterwards by somebody on the internet about the pronunciation of your surname. And I I wasn't wrong, was I? No, you weren't. It's dittered. And it's even for Germans a hard to pronounce her name. So you're forgiven. But also I've signed off on your pronunciation yet. So Next time you get yet uh, okay. yelled at, are, are you hearing you this? Were uh, correct. Ang- angry person <laughs> on the internet, are you listening? Um, we will start with the cheerful subject of atomic megadeth. On which front there is bad news and good news? The bad news is that Russia has flung another toy from its pram. In this instance, withdrawing itself from the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty, which, in fairness, is arguably less dramatic than it sounds, given that neither China, North Korea, India, Pakistan nor the United States ever ratified it in the first place. The potentially good news is that the United States and China will reportedly discuss nuclear arms control imminently. Um, Annette, first of all, to Russia withdrawing from the CTBT, as it's apparently known, um, given that almost nobody else ever really actually signed off on it, is this that big a deal? Not really as as a practical deal. It's more a symbolic gesture, if you like. I mean, he also added to it when he signed this today um, that he wouldn't act on it uh, as long as Washington wouldn't act on it. But 
what it is. It's a, it's a thinly veiled threat, mostly towards Europe, um, because he's very well aware, Putin, that uh, more and more European leaders are getting wary and tired with the war in Ukraine. You had this prankster, this Russian prankster calling Maloney uh, uh, disguised as an African diplomat, uh, which was not very interesting because she didn't really leave the European line. But what she said, and that's now out in the open, is um, that many European leaders are tired of this war. And that's what Putin is waiting for. And I think he knows exactly when to push which buttons to to, to not, 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 get the tension Not up. the happiest choice of metaphor in the circumstances. No, not really. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. uh, um, Germany is the same. I mean, the German Chancellor, Scholz, is also dithering and delaying new arms deliveries. There is a cruise missile system where parts uh, parties in his government really uh, want him to deliver it. He's adamant about not doing it. So he's clearly also a little bit scared of Putin. There is anxiety in Germany about a Russian threat. This feels much closer there than when you're here. I've been in Berlin last week, so I could feel it there. So so it's probably a good timing from Putin's perspective to, to raise this potential nuclear threat again. Um, Michael, as, as Annette did say, Russia has categorically denied that it intends to conduct a nuclear test. Should we therefore assume that that's exactly what Russia is going to do? I think what Russia says publicly, Andrew, is rarely a clue to their true intentions. <laughs> Um, but I think we should perhaps be also a little more worried about China, frankly, on the mm. nuclear front. I mean, China has been building up its nuclear arsenal very rapidly over the last years, uh, largely out of view, in fact, while everybody was worried about Russia, and has assembled already a, an arsenal of more than 500 warheads and has the intention of more than doubling that. And uh, uh, China also has a number of places where they might like to deploy those those nuclear weapons. So I think we perhaps ought to focus a little bit more on what China's been up to. But on that thought, Michael, is this China-US thing potentially a big deal? I mean, it's better that they're at least talking about this or happy to look like they're talking about this than not even pretending to look like they're talking about this. I think it's encouraging in the context of a broader uh, rapprochement, or at least more, more signs of, of <coughs> diplomatic uh, engagement between the US and China after a period, a very frosty period in which contacts were minimal. That that part is encouraging, but it, it's difficult to see how they can bridge really quite enormous differences between them at the moment. And we should remember, of course, that the, the big shift on China happened on Trump's watch, but uh, Biden has not changed it in any sense at all. He's, uh, if anything, deepened that, that American mistrust of China that was begun under Trump. Uh, the line on this, uh, Annette, is that they probably won't be talking about actual arms reduction, but it will be more more along the lines of trying to establish greater transparency, re their respective nuclear doctrines uh, and better crisis communications. Isn't that all arguably actually more important than how many warheads anybody has? Because as has been frequently pointed out, once you get past a certain number of deployable warheads, it's all pretty academic. Absolutely. And I also think we shouldn't get our hopes too high here. I mean, not only is the Chinese government famously opaque when it comes to what it's really doing or planning, but also if you look at the reaction from uh, after the um, Pentagon published its China paper last week where they claimed and stated that most probably China has way more than its uh, publicly admitting to the reactions from Beijing were 
pretty sharp. So I think <clears throat> given that we have massive tensions still between Washington and Beijing, I think it's great they start talking. It's a good sign, I agree. Um, but I think we should be careful and, and, and see what happens. Uh, Michael, I just want to go back to that point about uh, Biden's general, and you're right, uh, continuance of a, a quite uh, hostile stance towards China that was begun under President Trump. If, the, if there is any amount of rapprochement going on, and this does follow uh, Wang Yi's recent visit uh, to Washington, D.C., China's foreign minister, and the presumed uh, summit coming up next month in California between Biden and Xi Jinping. Does everybody understand that if they're going to improve things, they have a limited amount of time to do it before a presidential election properly kicks in? And of course, nobody in America is going to lose votes by beating up on China. Yes, I, I suspect, Andrew, that this might have something to do with American concern about not wanting to open too many fronts at once. I mean, we already have the war in Ukraine. We have conflict in the Middle East and the risk of escalation there. And you could imagine that the perfect American nightmare would be some kind of flare up in Taiwan right now. So it's easy in that context to explain why uh, the US State Department might be very interested in, in uh, getting talking to Beijing again. But as you say, I think, I think there are limits to this. The election is one limit. The other limit is now this very broad consensus which exists in Washington that China is a threat rather than a partner and that it should be contained rather than engaged. Um, and that's a consensus which has been formed quite firmly across party lines over the last few years and I don't think is going to shift quickly. But on the positive side, even if it's a first step to contain China a bit more, it's probably good news. Yeah. Well, here in the UK, meanwhile, the inquiry into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic by what was then Her Majesty's government is prompting a variety of emotions, possibly foremost among them astonished gratitude that any of us survived. The testimony of those who steered us through this crisis, or arguably into that iceberg, has combined with the release of contemporaneous WhatsApp messages to depict a governmental apparatus less like the Rolls-Royce of civil service mythology and more like something designed by Heath Robinson and operated by plausibly Britain's least qualified individual. Um, Annette, first of all, as somebody who has lived here a while and has become accustomed to the eccentricities of these islands, um, you are nevertheless from a country, as people will have gleaned from your accent, which is generally run by broadly serious and competent people. How weird is it for you to watch all of this unfurl? Quite weird, I must say. I, I must say, I mean, I have, as you said, I've been living here since 2008, so quite a while, and I've been used to a lot. And uh, I know or knew that uh, muddling through is more than just a lifestyle here. <laughs> but <laughs> I wasn't aware uh, um, how bad it was, even having reported throughout the pandemic and having seen all that. I mean, we knew all this, right? But to listen to these WhatsApp messages being read out and then to understand the extent to which this yeah, toxic macho culture was, was present there, um, I must say I, I watched through quite a lot of the inquiry as I came down with the cold at the time. Um, I, was, I found it rather shocking. I mean, I, I didn't imagine it being that bad, especially when on, after the test, uh, testimony for, uh, by Cummings, Helen McNamara, the top, one of the very few mm -hmm. female civil servants came, came up and, and described the atmosphere. And also that this toxic atmosphere wasn't just 
bad style, but also affected policy. I mean, women, she said, did die of that, for example, because PPE wasn't um, bought accordingly for, for female bodies, where, well, you had mostly women in, in the uh, hospitals. Um, so so it, overall, I must say, watching and listening through through a few hours of this inquiry, I was quite shocked, although I'm used to a lot. <laughs> uh, we, we do have some clips from Dominic Cummings' testimony, and Dominic Cummings, to remind our international listeners, was sort of, I guess, Boris Johnson's chief of staff, general ideological bagman and Rasputin. Uh, uh, his Rasputin possibly with with shorter hair and, and no moustache and a, a slightly more do address sense uh, it has to be said the chances of a Boney M song ever being written about Dominic Cummings are remote uh, but we do have this clip of Dominic Cummings unburdening his views uh, on senior civil servants you called ministers useless pigs morons in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who are dealing with this crisis extremely badly. He's a strange fellow, Dominic Cummings, uh, Michael. He, he does this thing of regarding pretty much everybody he's ever had to work with as a total idiot. But he has always, when put on the spot himself, presented himself uh, as a hapless, unqualified individual put into positions he should not have been in by forces he could scarcely control. It's very strange. Well, he sold himself as a sort of disruptor, I think, Andrew, as somebody who could come in and sort of blow up the apparatus of government and and do things, break things and do things fast and, you know, bring, uh, if you're want to credit him with anything, a sort of sense of of tech innovation to government. And we shouldn't forget that, of course, as one of the architects of Brexit, I mean, he's somebody who pulled off an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary thing, which many people thought was completely impossible. So he clearly had, you know, skills which were uh, deployable. Um, but yes, as you say, is a rather bizarre sort of mixture of, uh, of, of sort of intellectual superiority, but at the same time presenting himself as this sort of guy who's really very modest in his abilities. Well, on the subject of things that are apparently impossible, uh, Dominic Cummings also had some things to say about working uh, with and for his former boss and ally, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister would make a decision about something. Some element of the system, uh, uh, often in the Cabinet Office, would not like what had been agreed and in the best Sir Humphrey uh, Yesminster style, um, they would wait for uh, me and other people to not be around the Prime Minister and they would pop in to see the Prime Minister and say, dear Prime Minister, I think that this decision really wasn't the best idea. Very brave Prime Minister. Perhaps you should uh, um, uh, uh, trolley on it. And this was uh, a general problem. Uh, you do rather get the impression there, Annette, that Dominic Cummings is enjoying this rather a lot. But when he talks about Boris Johnson, you just end up thinking that 
Boris Johnson is one of those people about whom the only things you can think are the obvious. Everybody has known all of these things about Boris Johnson for literal decades, uh, and yet somehow he still ends up running the country. Yeah, and also he was brought in there by Dominic Cummings. Mm-hmm. That's what I found so particularly outrageous. I mean, he's the one who brought him in and and then kept saying what an idiot he, he was throughout the whole inquiry. I mean, didn't he have any involvement with that? I mean, that's that's something I found really striking, the narcissistic delusion of Cummings. <laughs> you, could, you could really see there for, really contemplate over quite a while, that he doesn't understand or didn't understand his part in this. And even today, I was just looking on Twitter, I mean, former Twitter ex, he's still ranting and raving on, on social media that he was the only one who got anything in there. I mean, what kind of style? I mean, it's just, is that legacy to 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 sort of insult on X on social media the day after? Still, this poor woman, uh, this civil servant, he called a peep. Um, <laughs> so I think it's quite extraordinary that he could stay in there for so long at all. It strikes me, uh, listening to him yesterday, Michael, that his big thing has always been that the, the the function, the apparatus of government is chronically dysfunctional in that it keeps allowing all exactly the wrong people into positions of high office. But it's very hard to name somebody who is a more obvious demonstration of what he's describing than Dominic Cummings. Well, absolutely. I say, Andrew, he was, he was brought in to sort of disrupt this culture. And, and so that was sort of part of his whole raison d'etre. But I think the, the rather dispiriting thing about this inquiry is, is the sort of another great British tradition on show of everybody blaming each other, trying to pass off the blame onto somebody else and failing to take any responsibility themselves. And I think that the risk in, in this torrent of sort of quotable WhatsApp is that actually no lessons are learnt for policy, that there's no really serious examination of policy failings or of, of, of processes and procedures within the civil service and within government that led to these disastrous decisions, and that we end up being just as ill-prepared for the next pandemic, God forbid, as, as we were for the last one. I mean, there, there have been some moments of comic relief, the revelation that, that Boris Johnson was interested in a sort of hairdryer device that you could might be able to blast up your nose um, and dispense with COVID-19 in that fashion. To be honest, Annette, I'm, I'm not especially upset by that kind of things. I think we have all been in situations where stressed people who haven't slept enough have got together and at some point somebody's going to make a completely idiotic decision or not decision but suggestion uh, and it's usually never heard from again. I think we can forgive them the odd hair dryer up the nose moment but I just, I just want to go back to the thing you mentioned earlier about the, the culture of misogyny, the, the tone that was taken by Cummings in certain of his messages especially about Helen McNamara and I believe we have a clip illustrating exactly that. You Mr Cummings were the person who denigrated women. You denigrated Helen McNamara and you sent that misogynistic message. You say this at 12.20, if I have to come back to Helen's bullshit with PET, I don't care how it's done, but that woman must be out of our hair. We cannot keep dealing with this horrific meltdown of the British state while dodging stilettos from that I was not misogynistic. I was much ruder uh, about men than I was about uh, uh, about Helen. Um, I agree that my language is deplorable. 
But as you can see for yourself, I deployed the same or worse language about the Prime Minister, Secretary of State and other people. I mean, it's a defence. Uh, but but just finally on this, Annette, it's to state the very obvious, it, it is the sort of language that should not be used in a professional context. Um, are you surprised, though, do you think many women hearing this were surprised that this does actually still go on, even in the highest echelons of government and other places where you really would have thought it wasn't on? Yes, I was surprised, I must say. And also, especially when I saw Helen McNamara the next day, um, who's more or less a decent woman who tried her best and read the email she sent trying to repair the damage these men were doing. I must say, I was quite shocked. But it's not so much about the language. I agree with you. I mean, these were really stressful times. But it's about seeing how dysfunctional Mm. number 10 was. I mean, the whole, I mean, the word that appeared like constantly in these emails that were quoted was like, we're world beating. That was almost (laughs) a meme of the Johnson era. And it wasn't really an attribute. It was, it was an attribute. It was not an aspiration. It was not something they wanted to achieve. It was something they saw themselves as in a narcissistic delusion as we're great. So we don't, if you simply are world beating you don't need to plan ahead for anything it's not an adjective you get to apply to yourself <laughs> no other people make that decision um let's no, but lo- what i mean is it affected the policy this this attitude it's mm. not so much about the words the swearing but about the, the this narcissistic delusion that made planning superficial we're just better than the italians they're whinging down there we don't need that that was shocking and I just me. say, I think we have to remember this was brought to you by the same people that brought us the ultimate narcissistic yes. delusion, which was Brexit. Yeah. Well, we will doubtless have... A connection have... that's rarely made in the British press, by the way. Well, we will doubtless have more on this inquiry uh, as it continues to enhance the general gaiety. But let's look now at the Middle East. Israel's previous incursions into Gaza have always been undertaken against a ticking clock. There comes a point when international attention, always hypersensitive to this of all conflicts, starts to make military action politically unviable. Israel has already signalled that such considerations will not stay its hand in its current war with Hamas, prompted by the massacres of October 7th. Nevertheless, the diplomatic consequences are beginning to mount, in Latin America in particular. Bolivia has now formally suspended diplomatic ties with Israel. Chile and Colombia had previously recalled their ambassadors for consultations, and Brazil had also been sharply critical. Um... First of all, on this one, Michael, is is this been a, a common theme of Latin American politics? Has there always been a an investment in the Palestinian cause? Well, uh, Andrew, these are all left-wing leaders mm. in Latin America who've taken these stances, and they're leaders who have had a strong personal identification with the cause of human rights. And so they're seeing it, I think, mainly through a human rights lens, and they feel that there are here some violations of international humanitarian law which are unacceptable and that they have an obligation to speak out against them. Um, in the case of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, the former guerrilla who's the president there, went much further and I think made some rather ill advised comparisons with the Holocaust, suggesting that what was going on in Gaza was rather like Auschwitz, got into a public spat with the Israeli ambassador who told him that he should go and visit Auschwitz. And Petra replied that he had visited and that he thought this was a valid comparison. So you have to rather wonder what he got himself into there. Um, Just to follow that up, though, it is still a thing, though, that for all their interest in human rights and their left-wing backgrounds, 
they are more interested in this conflict than they are in any others. None, none of these countries, none of these leaders have been nearly as voluble in well, just in recent weeks, depressingly, about the war in Sudan, uh, the complete ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh, or the current uh, attempt by Pakistan to depopulate itself to the tune of two million Afghans. Why this one in particular? Well, in the case of Chile, we should remember it has the largest community of Palestinians outside the Middle East, um, approaching half a million Palestinians in Chile, which is a community going back a a very long time. And there are quite significant communities of Arab descent in in other parts of Latin America too. Uh, In Argentina, of course, the biggest Jewish community in Latin America, the sensitivities are slightly different. And the statements from the Argentine government on this conflict have been much more nuanced in in reflection of that. Um, But I I think it's, it's a conflict that always hits the headlines. And Uh, important as the Afghan developments are and the Sudan ones that you referred to, Andrew, they they just don't seem to have quite the same capacity to project internationally. I mean, this Israel-Gaza conflict has been front page news across Latin America, as in most of the rest of the world, for weeks now in a way that those other conflicts have not been. Um, and that is there a, a does this illustrate, I guess, a a wider mistake uh, that Israel may have made in acting as severely and as hastily against Gaza as it has? Because in the immediate period after the the absolute horrors of October seventh, barring I think some extremely cranky opinion that will always uh, accuse Israel of having brought whatever it is on itself, there was uh, enormous. Uh, sympathy and empathy and global anger at what had occurred, and I think quite rightly. Um, But very quickly, the story has become, again, not unreasonably, Gaza, um, and Israel has rather lost control of the narrative. I mean, we don't really have the time to discuss this whole story here in in, in the time we, we would need for it. But of course, this was also a trap. I mean, Mm. Israel had no choice really to acting reasonably or fair or in a way that it wouldn't produce pictures that would go against it. And even in Europe and even in Germany, I have Jewish friends who deeply disappointed how quick and short the phase was where Israel was seen as the victim and how Mm. how quickly afterwards uh, it was all about Gaza. And and of course, I mean, it's it's a very difficult situation to be in if you've seen the pictures of the slaughtering. I mean, there is nothing you couldn't just accept it and say this is a trap and we won't wade in. But of course, now you have these pictures and um, there will be more protest against it. And it is a terrible, terrible, tragic situation. Um, but I don't really um, see how Israel could have gotten out of it. Uh, To go back to Latin America, Michael, are we seeing here echoes of what we saw with Ukraine, where I think there was, certainly within Europe and the United States, the response was pretty instant and pretty cohesive. This is terrible. This is wrong. This will not stand. Uh, We must do everything we can to help Ukraine uh, and try to reverse this monstrosity. Um, Expected the rest of the world to be right behind them and then turned around and discovered that quite a lot of the rest of the world, uh, very much including a lot of South America, was sort of going, eh... Is this the same kind of thing? Yeah, Latin America has been very critical of what it sees as Western double standards on human rights, that there's, a, they would say, a lot of selectivity in the way that Western powers apply their standards on human rights. They're quite happy to uh, bomb Afghanistan or to uh, attempt regime change in Libya 
or, or Iraq with sometimes rather disastrous consequences, humanitarian consequences about which very little is said. But they're then very quick to call out other countries and uh, sometimes single them out for punishment uh, over over their actions, which are, are deemed to be unacceptable. Um, so yes, that, that very much fits into that tradition. I, I just add on, on the Gaza thing, Andrew, I think it's, it's a very sad reflection really also on the Netanyahu government. And uh, he had created this trap in a sense for himself because he pursued a policy for the past decade of not pursuing negotiations with the Palestinians, um, essentially uh, trusting in a strategy of, of separating off the Palestinian areas from the rest of Israel, minimizing links, maximizing uh, wall building and, uh, and and sort of leaving it at that. And I think as we know from history and the you know, the Berlin Wall was a good example. Walls are not a solution ultimately to conflicts and problems. Sooner or later, the problem erupts. And, and, and that's sort of what we've seen in a broad sense. That's a very good point, I think. And that's also why even in Israel and, and in Jewish communities, I know the, the, the point whether Netanyahu shouldn't be exchanged now uh, is is really a valid one. Because, mm. I mean, he's he's been provoking this in a way. I mean, not only, of course, but um, a lot of Israelis are not really sure whether he he should still be in charge. And I mean, you had prime ministers that were exchanged during during wars like Chamberlain. So it's it's a it's a possibility. And it's a question that comes up more and more now, I think. And I agree. He has a part in this. Well, let's now turn our eyes skyward. And if we should have learned anything from the online age, it should have been this, that human delusion and stupidity will expand to fill the space made available in which to express it. This observation is floated on a day when Marks and Spencer has issued an apology to online moonbats who have persuaded themselves and each other that an outtake from the MS Christmas ad is either or both a blasphemous rebuke to Christianity or an insult to Palestine. The point being that the Pentagon is surely asking for trouble by launching an online reporting tool to collect encounters with unidentified anomalous phenomena, formerly known and much, much easier to pronounce as unidentified flying objects. Um, Michael, first of all, they are at the moment restricting access to this online UFO spotting thing to current or former federal employees, but they are planning to open it to the general public. I mean, they're asking for it, aren't they? The mind boggles. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. I really hope they've got some great AI to deal with the stuff that comes in because I think it'll be beyond human capacity. One would really think that um, the Pentagon has other problems at the moment. <laughs> but I mean, they seem to ask for it. But, but th th <laughs> this this yeah. is the thing that blows my mind. If, if you are the Pentagon, if you are the US Department of Defense, you're probably all right as it is for correspondence from lunatics. Yeah, absolutely. Th this is... This is actually asking for yeah. it. But but is there, and I'll put this to you, Annette, a, a serious thing here, because there have been increased releases of information about what we're now calling UAPs in recent months. The Pentagon is quite transparently saying, yeah, you know what? We have seen stuff that we cannot actually explain. Um, is it possible that more input from the public might solve some of these mysteries? I mean, I don't know. I was just watching this afternoon Bill Nelson, the NASA boss who gave a speech in September and who very clearly said, is there any evidence uh, there is something out there? No. But if you ask me whether I think it's possible, if I look at this vast universe, I have to say yes. That, that quite, <laughs> I found that quite striking because, I mean, 
if the boss of NASA thinks it's very possible, then who knows? Maybe he's right. There was a similar quote, Michael, from Sean Kirkpatrick, who is the director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Uh, he said, and I quote, I currently have no evidence of any program having ever existed to do any sort of reverse engineering of any sort of extraterrestrial UAP program. I mean, he would say that, wouldn't he? That's, that's what he wants us to think. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a, a great subscriber to the theory of extraterrestrial life, at least not not close enough for us to perceive uh, or in our skies. I think a, a lot of these unidentified objects are much more likely to be drones that have gone astray or uh, or Chinese spy satellites or, or something of the like uh, rather than extraterrestrial activity. But, uh, uh, I mean, it's obviously possible that in some very distant corner of the universe something is going on, but it's probably so many light years away that we'll, we'll never know about it. That is a partial answer to the question I wanted to ask you both finally, which is basically, would either of you have called to contribute to the Pentagon's database of UAP sightings. Have either of you ever seen something hovering in the sky that made you think, hang on a second? I'm sorry, I have to disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly not, no. I'm see, afraid not. See, this, yeah. is, this is why we, we, we should have had Americans on the show yeah, absolutely. this particular item because <laughs> the, the odds are that at least one of them would think they had at some point Definitely. been kidnapped yeah. by Martians. Um, sure. Annette Dittert on my, and Michael Stott on that earthbound note. Thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, it is time for our letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan. Now, to a dramatic rescue that sounds like a movie script, but this was all too real for a man in Midtown. He got stuck inside a vault in the Diamond District for 10 hours. News Force Gabi Acevedo is live with how he got in and then also how he got out. We are outside of the building located on Fifth Avenue on 47th Street in the Diamond District. He was accessing his safety deposit box. It was in a building called the World Diamond Tower in Midtown Manhattan home to several jewellery businesses. But while he was in there, he got trapped. Firefighters were swift to arrive at the scene. They began to use special tools to break through the 30-inch concrete walls of the vault. But when they reached a layer of steel reinforcement plating, they decided to stop. They feared that the torches they would have to use to penetrate the steel could create fumes that would harm the man trapped inside. They also knew that the vault had a built-in safety mechanism. The doors were scheduled to automatically open at set intervals, and the mechanism worked. The doors opened around 7 a.m. The trapped man emerged unscathed after 10 hours in the vault. He refused medical attention and declined to comment on his experience. 10 hours in a jewellery vault is horrible. I'd be absolutely shitting myself figuratively at an early stage of the ordeal and unfortunately probably also literally towards the end but it's only the third most harrowing story of people in nyc getting trapped that i'm aware of in second place is the tale of nicholas white i heard of white's plight through nick palmgarten's 2014 New Yorker magazine piece all about elevators called Up and Then Down. In 1999, White was working as a production manager at Business Week magazine in the Rockefeller Center. 
he stepped out of the magazine's offices on the 43rd floor to take a cigarette break. But while he was riding the elevator, there was a malfunction. The elevator car came to a stop between floors. White rang the emergency alarm, but no one came. It was late on a Friday evening, and there was only a skeleton staff in the building, the others having left for the weekend. White pried open the elevator doors and shouted for help into the shaft. He started having oral hallucinations caused by the constantly ringing alarm. He pries the doors open again to piss into the shaft this time. Eventually he lay on the floor, put his shoes under his head to use as a pillow and created a makeshift sleep mask out of his wallet. It would be 41 hours until White was freed. Nearly two full days and nights in the elevator. But I'd still rather suffer that than the number one most harrowing New York City being trapped story I've heard of. In 2020, Leonard Shoulders was waiting for a bus in the Bronx when the pavement gave way beneath him. He plunged 15 feet into an abandoned vault infested with rats. His brother said that there were so many rats crawling over Shoulders as he lay at the bottom of the vault that he couldn't scream for help because if he did, the rats would enter his mouth. Shoulders was in the vault for half an hour before he was rescued from the sinkhole and taken to hospital for treatment of his injuries. Half an hour in, essentially, hell. What lessons can we take from these unfortunate men? In terms of hazard avoidance, almost none. Only the jewellery vault guy might have been getting up to something suspicious. Neither Nicholas White from the Business Week elevator, nor Leonard Shoulders from the subterranean rat vault, could reasonably be accused of engaging in high-risk behaviour when they became trapped. But what about any broader lessons? In the New Yorker story about White's ordeal, the author, Nick Palmgarten, reports on the aftermath of White's 48-hour elevator ride. White never went back to work at Business Week. He filed a lawsuit for $25 million against the building's management and the elevator maintenance company. After four years, they settled for an amount in the low six figures. Business Week let White go from the job he'd held for 15 years. He lost all contact with his former colleagues, lost his apartment and spent all his money. At the time the article was published in 2014, he was unemployed. While most of us will hopefully never have to endure physical entrapment, we're all trapped in the vaults of our own minds. Some of us are blessed with psyches as ordered and well-appointed as a luxury jewellery safety deposit vault. Others have inner worlds infested with thousands of rats. But more of us than would want to admit have minds like the brown-carpeted, drab interior of the elevator Nicholas White got caught in. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Reece Sheridan, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Annette Dittert and Michael Stott. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 